What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another episode of Faith Unaltered, the Complete Center's Guide and Real Seekers. We're broadcasting on three different platforms tonight, and I am excited for our conversation with Warren McGrew. Is total depravity biblical? And we are getting an understanding of uh, Warren's understanding of provisionism and looking at the debate that Warren had with Dan Chapa on the topic of total depravity. But before we start and introduce Warren, Josh, what is up, man? You, It has been a minute since you've been here. What have you been up to? Uh, I have been uh, losing my mind trying to figure out how to better mask off uh new construction areas with tape and plastic and um trying not to cuss too often as my frustration <laughs> mounts um but no i i have felt the absence let's just say mm -hmm. that i i like doing this i really do and yeah. in some weird sense uh i feel i feel the t the passage of time you know what I mean? I have gotten to do some guest features on other podcasts and stuff. I've been uh, working with my buddy Nico uh, on his 3M podcast. Uh, anybody who's listening right now, if you haven't checked that out, if you're interested in mythology, divine council, worldview, storytelling, uh, those kind of things, the, the supernatural, paranormal, that channel is fantastic. It's just starting out right now. Uh, and he's doing some really cool stuff over there. So shout out for Nico. But um, other than that, I've been... Uh, I've been unfortunate. Just be I was gonna I've say, been... just be honest, Josh, and say you needed a break from Tyler. Right? We always, <laughs> we it happens. It happens. Well, I've been, I've been unfortunately stuck at work for most of the broadcasts that you guys have done uh, in the last couple of weeks because they've been morning broadcasts, and I am just not available in morning times because uh, I'm already at work, uh, and the time difference makes things a, a bit iffy sometimes. So I am just pleased as punch to be here today. Uh, and this is actually a topic that for me uh, became relevant and important probably like, what, four or five-ish years ago, something like that. Oh. Uh, and in in a subtle background sense, Warren has actually been a really uh, relevant influence for me in this arena because I've watched several uh, interactions, not only in comment sections or on his channel with uh, a playback of other videos, but also some debates that he has been in. Uh, uh, previously. And so this is, this is cool being able to interact with him in this way. Uh, and so I'm, I'm definitely pleased to be here this time for sure. Right on. Well, we've missed you, buddy. And, you know, like, I think you, you nailed it. You know, you go back four or five years and our friendship goes back four or five years. And this is what it started. You know, whenever we first began engaging with each other, it was on this subject, Calvinism, total depravity, TULIP, you know, the whole acronym. And True story. <laughs> we had our go about. So Josh was just leaving Calvinism uh, at this time that I was just entering into Calvinism because of total depravity. Mm -hmm. And uh, and yeah, so we've had some interesting conversations about this subject. Uh, Dell, it's nice to have you with us as well. Uh, you've just hit a thousand subscribers, buddy. So Woo! on Real nice. Seekers. Um, that's wonderful. And so y'all, if you would like to support Dell's ministry now, uh, you can send him a super chat, or if you'd like to support faith unaltered, you can send us a super chat or super sticker, and we will get to your question first, but Warren, thank you for joining us tonight. I am excited as all get out to have you here. Um, especially with my recent, in, you know, investigations with Eastern Orthodoxy and anthropology, I've really wanted to get an, a better understanding 
of anthropology, just, you know, full circle. And so I think I understand the Augustinian, uh, uh, Wesleyan, you know, Western, um, thing with it. And, uh, and I'm excited to get your view. So welcome, sir. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. And if you would, uh, give our listeners a little background about you. Oh yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, thanks for the kind words and, um, yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, you know, like Josh was saying, his exodus from Calvinism seemed to be precipitated in part due to total depravity. And that's that's kind of how my journey was as well. Um, I was born and raised uh, in a Calvinist home, um, you know, very hyper high Calvinist. My dad had all of A.W. Pink's books in the closet, you know, and um I remember learning how to read on the King James Version. And then as I got a little bit older, going and digging out one of uh, his Sovereignty of God books and trying to read it, my dad coming in going, do you understand it? Now, my, my Calvinist friends would say, I still don't, um, you know, because I've come to reject it. But but I did I did come to affirm it. And, uh, and I affirmed various flavors of Calvinism, um, for, you know, for many, many years. But then in uh, around 2014, my third uh, pregnancy resulted in triplets. And so we had three girls. So we went from two kids, one boy and one girl, to five kids, one boy and four girls. And, um, you know, when, when you have preemies, uh, doesn't matter how you know much you care and prepare, they come out with needs and babies always do you know and uh and our triplets i think we made it to 32 or 35 weeks so we went we went pretty far but uh when they were born one of them had um like a potential pneumothorax like a little air pocket in the lung one of them had to have like electrodes on her we call her sparky to this day you know and it would monitor her and if she stopped breathing it would sound an alarm and if she got bored she just pull one off and wait for you to come running. And then she'd look up at you smiling, you know, <laughs> she rang her little bell cause she wanted daddy to pick her up. And uh, so when we brought them home, it's not, it's not like you go from one baby. Okay. That equals X number of work. Three babies equals just three times the work. It, the math is weird because it, it, it feel like you're taking care of a hundred babies um the 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 strain and toll you're just outnumbered and uh so for the first six months that they were born i was just obsessed with taking care of them preparing and providing for them and uh getting very little sleep and about six months in my my wife said that she was taking the kids to her mom's for the the day and i could have the whole saturday to myself and so i thought well you know this is a great time to nap and go hang out with the guys and play board games or go see a UFC fight or something. But as I was headed to the bed to take a nap, I saw my Bible and I felt convicted. And so I picked it up and started reading. And about an hour and a half later, I didn't even know what Christianity was because I didn't see Calvinism in it anymore. Uh, And it started with total depravity. I went back to Genesis, started reading three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I get to Genesis eight. I'm like, hightailing it to Psalm 51, five, you know, like I'm bouncing all around. And I ended up spending the entire Saturday studying all of the proof texts that I, as a Calvinist had affirmed, taught it. And as I investigated each one of them, I found out it didn't. 
And that was on a Saturday. And so Sunday morning, I went to my Calvinist pastor and Sunday school teacher who are experts in biblical languages. And uh, that kind of began my exodus out of Calvinism. And then the question began, well, who thinks like you? And then I discovered Eastern Orthodoxy. And I go, oh, are these my people? You know, kind of like when I was a kid, my mom read me this book about a little bird that fell out of its nest. And it was, are you my mother? Yeah. You know, you go up to the big monster machine truck and it's like, are you my mother? No, you're a great big scary snort, you know? And uh, so I was just trying to find like where I fit in the world. And so I spent several years just studying my Bible, studying um, ancient Near Eastern con uh, concepts of God, particularly with the you know, Hebraic emphasis, early Christianity up to really the time of Augustine. Um, and so that kind of led me into a very peculiar place. I'm not your, your uh, typical Protestant anymore because most Protestants are by way of protesting Rome. So I describe myself now as a uh, just a follower of Christ who's probably protesting something with Eastern Orthodoxy. That's that's where I'm, a, I'm like an Eastern Orthodox leaning Protestant. Um, so I'll come in there and I have some disagreements with their some of their metaphysics, um, some of the Marian dogmas. But generally, I, I have a lot more in common with um, Eastern Orthodoxy, provisionism, even some Anabaptist traditions. So I'm kind of a Christian mutt. Um but I'm okay with that. You know, I, I'm following Christ. I'm, I'm accountable to him. I attend the, uh, the local uh, Southern Baptist church up the road and I'm trying to find a better home, but they're good people. They love the Lord. And, and um, you know, so that's kind of where I'm at now. And I run idol killer. This is a really long intro. Uh, oh, you're good, bro. I, I ramble guys. I ramble. Oh, you're good. I run idol killer and we do, uh, interviews like this, uh, where I'll bring on guests that are far more uh, studied and experienced than myself, experts in various topics. I've got a program coming up with Brian Mullins and Thomas J. Ord on reconsidering omnipotence versus uh, amipotence, amipotence. Uh, basically just grounding God's power and his love. That's a, a new book coming out by, uh, by Ord. We'll, we'll have conversations like that. Or We'll discuss, you know, classic omniscience versus dynamic omniscience, or we'll get into discussing this topic, which is total depravity, or I'll put out hip hop videos with John MacArthur sound bites showing <laughs> how he believes God is the author of evil, or I'll do that with R.C. Sproul, where he's saying GDU to Jesus, and it's all polemical, and it's designed to be a bucket of cold water for my listeners and go, hmm. When we're sitting in a service for an hour, we don't necessarily pick up on all these little things. But when you put them to a hip hop track and you put them back to back, that doesn't sound quite as uh, mm, there's something about that I don't like. And and so I try to give a good balance and then I use humor and I'm, I'm all over the place and therefore my channel is as well. Wow. So that's that's me, guys. That's me. I do. I do theological debates like we're going to be discussing tonight. Um, and then I'm a father of five kids, like I said, and I'm also in, in contracting out of here in Atlanta, Georgia. So uh, just, yeah, enjoying theology and family. That's really my two passions. That's awesome, Warren. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, brother. And so Idol Killer, let me just ask this real quick. Is this a YouTube only 
platform or where where can people find your ministry at oh yeah i mean all my content's on youtube um i need to take time and port it over to like podbean and spotify and do the audio only but that requires more time than i'm able to give it right now mm -hmm. and um ultimately i would love to do that or i would love to pay or maybe have a volunteer come in and edit these into an audio format if you're out there and you like working for free and you're good with editing, give me a call. I don't think you exist, but if you're there, hello, uh, you're hired. But um, right now it's just on YouTube and then I'll, uh, I'll engage in the madness on Twitter, which I'm more than happy to admit I'm part of. Uh, then I also have an idolkiller.com where I'll post those videos um, and I also have a, a Facebook page, which is basically just directing people to the YouTube channel. Right on, right on. All right, Warren. So let's jump in, shall we? So as I was telling you and the guys, you know, off of air, I would love to get, because we've never had, um, a provisionist episode before, um, granted with the caveat that you're about to bring, let me get your understanding of provisionism and how it applies to the debate between Calvinists and Arminians today. Ooh, okay, so uh, provisionism is really um, more of that traditionalist Baptist kind of soteriology. Mm -hmm. um, that's really where it kind of comes from, if I understand it correctly. And again, depending on who you ask, I don't. So, <laughs> so that that's true in all these discussions. Really, we're all a heretic to somebody. We're, right? we're all heretics. <laughs> um, but um, the the thing that I, I like about provisionism is its focus on uh, God making provision for everyone. Hmm. And this isn't a theoretical provision where you could have had it provided for you if you wanted it, but you were created unable to want it. This is not. This isn't like it, the the reward is in the tree and you're a fish and you can't get up there and get it. But this is really just an emphasis that, that God in Christ has made sufficient provision such that everyone uh, can come to faith, can believe, can be saved. And uh, now there are some other entailments of provisionism. Uh, it's really spearheaded by Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101. Mm -hmm. And anytime he has me on his show, he's always careful to say, I like Warren, but we don't agree on everything. <laughs> which lets me know that I have some controversial views that may get dear brother flowers in trouble. And so he has to love me from an, an arm's length and, uh, and I'm okay with that. So um, Leighton doesn't affirm hundred percent of everything that I believe. I don't even think he would say 90%, mm -hmm. probably 88, not um, 89.2. Yeah. <laughs> but he put out a, uh, uh, an acrostic basically where, the P is for people sin. The R is that everyone is responsible and able to respond. That uh, the O is an open door. V is a vicarious atonement. I is illuminating grace. D is destroyed. E is eternal security. I, I, I can't get behind a lot of that, uh, but I am behind the P. So I am, I am behind the provision for all people. So I'm a big tent provisionist. But when you get into some of the other entailments of provide, I don't hold to eternal security. I reject penal substitutionary atonement as Western dogma that is an assault on the incarnation and redemption of Christ. So I have some really strong views on uh, atonement theory 
and anthropology. And um, so I don't speak for provisionism and I don't speak for Leighton. So you can't hold anything that I say here tonight against uh, Brother Flowers. <laughs> um, people are always trying to cause division and they'll be like, hmm. well, Warren said this. That must mean you've endorsed him because you've had him on your show. So and I'm sure you guys don't agree with everything I'm going to say tonight either. But we can have a charitable conversation. We can agree on the fundamentals of Christ. So uh, provisionism, as, as far as I am in that camp, uh, is just the belief that God has made provision for all men in Christ. Right on, right on. So let me ask you this. Um, how exactly, because given the discussion that Dr. Flowers had, so he reviewed our video that we did with Dan Chapa, mm -hmm. um, how I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding how grace, given your view of anthropology, how does grace exactly work in the provisionist scheme of things, right? So from what I've understood, and you can correct any of this that's wrong, Warren, but I was talking with Dane uh, Von Ace today. He's a good brother and a good friend of mine, a uh, Methodist pastor that holds to Arminianism um, in, in one sense anyway. But so what I've narrowed this down to is the main difference between provisionism and uh, like an Arminian would be the means by which God works through uh, a person, right? Or, or just the means uh, in, in general. So from my understanding, God works through, in provisionism, God works through evangelism, God works through preaching, etc. the scriptures, right? But Arminianism would say that's not enough. It takes a supernatural work of God, provenient grace namely, to enable the person to believe. And that seems like one of the key differences between Arminianism and provisionism. Is that accurate? Or yeah, how yeah, would you? Yeah. Okay. So, so, I mean, like you're, you're leaning Eastern, right? You're going, you're going East. You're mm -hmm. headed East young man. Yep. So I'm all the um, way there now. Oh, you're, you're there. You're there. Riding off into the, uh, the sunrise, isn't it? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so got Josh but, on the back, you know, that's right. <laughs> so, but, uh, but in the East, like, uh, you know, they'll, they'll see, uh, uh, God's grace being given at baptism, Mm -hmm. uh, God's grace being given at the, the Eucharist. Um, they have an understanding of God's grace as uh, coming in, in in various ways. Right. Historically, there were about seven different views in which the, the, the grace of God was said to be at work. But it was always through various means. It would be through uh, natural revelation. It would be through the, the law written on our hearts, so that the conscience that we all were created with. It would be through um, uh, the prophets. It would be through the Torah. It would be through uh, the work and teaching of Christ. It would be through the uh, sharing of the gospel and teaching. There were all these different ways where you could see God being gracious. God's grace was that he didn't judge us and destroy us the moment that we offended, but he patiently endured loving us and calling us and teaching us, leading us to repentance, being patient. So all of these ways are, are seen as, as God's grace at work. The, the real divide goes all the way back to the old uh, Augustine versus Pelagius debacle, where Augustine and his camp really came in and strong-armed a singular view of effectual, prevenient grace as the definition of grace. Mm -hmm. And this happened uh, really around Carthage. Uh, Dan notes this, but um, I don't see that as a, a strong argument in favor of, of, of Dan's position, because 
this was done with a bunch of Augustine and his cronies. Uh, I think two or three of them actually were stripped of their sees and called wicked liars by the Pope. Um, so I don't think that that is the best uh, source for defining these doctrines, not to mention that they broke canon law in order to try a man without him actually being present. Oh, but wow. that's really where this whole thing goes back is, is to uh, Augustine redefining it as effectual prevenient grace. And this was a competing view. And I, I, I don't even, I wouldn't even say that this was necessarily unique to Augustine at the time. There were conversations going on in Northern Africa. This was kind of, there, there were other views, but these all seem to influence Augustine. And if you imagine him as kind of the filter and he kind of brought everything to a point and formalized it, that's why we give him credit for it. Um, gotcha. But that's really where that that distinction comes back. And and part of the problem was, was that Augustine could not uh, read or speak Greek or Hebrew. He relied on Jerome's Vulgate. Mm -hmm. And so he would see like, uh, he would see about Romans 5, where it talks about uh, because of Adam's sin, he would read in whom we sinned because the Vulgate had ambiguity there. And because he came from a Manichaean background, that colored his interpretation there. But the East didn't have that problem. They spoke Greek. They had, they had, um, you know, um, access to the the ancient writings, and they did not adopt Augustine's anthropology. And when we're talking about East and West, just for the viewer, we're talking about Roman Catholicism out of Rome versus Constantinople in the East. Constantinople, they spoke Greek. They read Greek. They understood it in Rome. They spoke Latin and they really, because of the invasion from the Germanic tribes, they were under constant threat and they lost access to the East. And so they relied on a lot of patchwork and guesswork where they were cobbling it together and making it up as they went along. And Augustine was pivotal in that formulation. So, yeah, I mean, the, the issue is going to be grace. So when we come in and we say, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We're saying that's the means and the means themselves have power. It has energy. It has life. It has effectiveness mm -hmm. for one who believes in either prevenient enabling grace or effectual prevenient grace. They say that's not enough because of your Augustinian ontology. You can't believe the gospel. You can't accept it, whether it's due to a spiritual inability to rightly understand spiritual truths or an enmity you have where you just are unable to accept it because you're so hostile, mm -hmm. you can't. So you have to have this ontological change in order to overcome this. And so then the Calvinist comes in with his pre-faith regeneration. The Ar Arminian comes in with his pre-faith uh, enabling grace. And they come up with cures to this supposed issue. But if you go back to Judaism doesn't exist. If you go back to the early church, it doesn't exist. When does it come on the scene? It really comes on the scene in the day and age of Augustine. So provisionism in its ontology is closer to the Hebrew understanding or the very early Christian view. I would say that the, the view of provisionist sin nature and Eastern Orthodoxy's view of ancestral sin is almost a one-to-one -one correlation. It's almost identical. I don't really see any distinction there that is worth fighting over. I really don't. 
Right. So this is the, so forgive me for being kind of facetious. So this is the blue aardvark pink elephant, right? Mm -hmm. Discussion. So what is happening is Augustine and, and throughout down throughout the line, right? They've created a problem that they need a cure for. And if they would just get rid of the problem that doesn't exist, according to you, then they wouldn't need this cure. And maybe we could all sing Kumbaya at the end of the day. Right. Is that fair? Yeah. So, so that, that analogy comes from a, a statement I made on Layton's program where I said, yeah, Augustine invented this invisible flying pink elephant mm -hmm. that bats away all spiritual truth that will come at you. And so in order to overcome that, you know, because that, that's, that's something that you're born with due to Adam, according to Augustine. Mm -hmm. So then Calvinists and Arminians come in and they go, no, there's this invisible flying blue aardvark that will come in and the Calvinists will say, it'll grab those words of truth and cram them in your ears. And the Arminian says, no, no, he, he just, he just keeps the, the pink elephant away. Yeah. But they're both trying to come up with supposed cures to a supposed problem that, that really isn't biblical. And in fact, when you dig into it, it negates the incarnation or corrupts it. Those are the only two options. If you're consistent with its entailments, mm -hmm. um, it would condemn infants to hell. If you're consistent, but then we go, well, no, but God, God likes those little baby vipers. He's going to send them to heaven because they're baby vipers. And you go, well, well, why? Well, they don't know any better. Well, don't you believe in total inability? What's the difference between a, a baby viper that doesn't know any better and an adult viper that doesn't know any better? They both are unable, right? So the only distinction is age. Uh, 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 well, we all intrinsically know that babies are innocent and they won't fall on Jonathan Edwards' sword these days as much as they used to and say that he casts them into hell. So um, there's a lot of entailments from that view that I, I constantly raise because I really think mm -hmm. that it's a detriment to the faith. I think that it entails antichrist philosophy. I think that it's an impediment to people that are coming to the faith. I think that it's precipitous on many people apostatizing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that it's overall, uh, in, in no less terms, wicked. I, th I think that it is a depraved doctrine that needs to be once and for all put to bed. Yeah. You know, going back to the baby viper, adult viper thing, I like that because I hear, you know, and I, I used to listen to Jeff Durbin a lot, and he would argue with atheists and go to the abortion mill, right, and, and tell the people, look, what's the difference between uh, the embryo or, you know, even the zygote, right. And, an adult, well, age development and size, that that's the only difference. And, so, and it seems like the same thing can be applied when arguing for, or, or well, in, in your case against total depravity, right. There's no difference between a baby viper and an adult viper other than development, size and age. That's it. Right. That's it. So, okay, fair enough. Josh, Dale, do you guys, uh, at this point, do you guys have anything that you'd like to add or ask? Dale, you can go first. Okay, so so just so I'm understanding this, so prevenient grace, let's take the non-Calvinist understanding, right? So mm -hmm. prevenient grace, this would be kind of, uh, okay, I'm not, that's for me or what is that? No, sorry, I was just posting it. I didn't mean to throw you off though my bad no worries. no worries okay so so this would be look the holy spirit has inspired the gospels and we have the written gospels or something like that so we do have access to these propositions um but then the problem comes in the the pink elephant comes in because we have this natural born resistance um to accepting these truths 
to varying degrees, I, I would argue, based on our free will and stuff like that. Um, and then that's where the additional amount of grace comes in, where the Holy Spirit at some point will authenticate the truths of the gospel. Am I understanding the the scheme as how we would, uh, non-provisionists would put it? Or Well, uh, if you're if you're an Augustinian, you say that we're created with the guilt of Adam under God's wrath and with a in, inability and a uh, actually a hostile desire even uh, to the things of God that we have to be either effectually regenerated, given faith, a new heart, new mind, so as to believe and come like ensure our salvation, or we have to be uh, so preveniently graced that we're enabled such that when we present it, we can understand it and then freely accept it or reject it. So the Arminian is really sweeping away their initial presupposition and going, all right, you have this inability, but the good news is you have this ability. And so it, it, it really, it really, it, it seems like they just maintain that because they don't want to be called Pelagian by some mean, mean guys on the, on the, uh, the Augustinian side. So they're like, no, 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 we believe in, in Augustinian anthropology, but it, for all intents and purposes, doesn't exist anymore because the prevenient grace of God. Whereas on my end, we believe people sin. We believe people are guilty when they sin. We believe there's consequences from Adam's fall that don't entail guilt from us. We're created mortal. We don't have the guilt of that, but we suffer consequences. Just like a drunk driver can hit a family going to church and kill them all. They died for the sin of drunk driving, but they weren't guilty of it. And so we have consequences from Adam, but then we also can sin ourselves and be guilty for that. But even if we're slaves to sin, it doesn't mean that we're created ontologically unable to recognize we're slaves when presented with the truth of it and ask for God to set us free. It doesn't mean that we can't feel remorseful and cry out to God. It doesn't mean that we can't even recognize like those in, in Romans that there's this unknown God that we don't know, but we really have this inclination believing that he's there and you know we're going to recognize you we don't really understand you too well. And then somebody comes in and gives us the gospel and we go, oh, that's what this is. So in the, the non-Augustinian view, whether it's Eastern Orthodoxy, non-Augustinian Anabaptists, whether it's provisionists or non-denominationalists, we just come in and say, we're born mortal in a world of suffering, weak, weak to sin. Some people would call that a sinful nature. Some people would just call it a weakness. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that we're prone to being deceived and, and tempted and led astray. We're born ignorant, lacking knowledge, so we're easily tricked. Mm -hmm. uh, we're born into a world where our parents are sinners and they're modeling that out for us. Uh, our own parents will tempt us to sin because they're horrible parents. I don't know about you guys. I'm a horrible parent. I strive to be a great one, but there are times where I I live out and in, in things in front of my children that I really that that's on me, you know, that's not their fault, but I'm exposing them to this, you know, or maybe we're cruising through uh, YouTube on the family channel and there's an ad on there they shouldn't see. And I can't skip it fast enough because I got to wait five seconds and I'm exposing these things to my kids. But that doesn't mean that they're not able to recognize it as wrong. Doesn't mean that they're not able to hear the gospel and go, daddy, I believe in Jesus, you know, daddy, I, I, I want to live forever. Daddy, I don't want to be guilty of sin. You know, mm -hmm. when they get older and they understand the weight of their sin, they're able to confess that and repent. Uh, 
So the real difference is the Augustinian says you were damned because of Adam. Most of mankind was selected for hell. Um, then they'll argue about, well, was it effectual regeneration or was it provenient enabling? So the, the Arminian has, a, I think, a better soteriology than the Calvinist, but it's still a defunct view because of Augustine, in my view. And then in our view, we just come in and go, no, you're, you're created with these strikes against you. You're created in a fallen world. You're created suffering the consequences of Adam. You're created weak, all of these things, but you're not guilty and you're not unable. That's why we have children's Bibles. So we can teach our children in the way that they'll go. So when they're older, they won't depart from it. You know, we can actually in instruct and we can love and we can mentor and we can mo model out for them what a, a godly father should be so that when they're older, they'll be able to relate that to the heavenly father mm -hmm. and that the Holy Spirit is using means. It inspires me when I spend time in prayer and, and study with the Lord. The Holy Spirit moves on me, leads me and says, you want to be a better father. Work on your on this with your children, right? So the, the Holy Spirit is using scripture to inspire me to then inspire my children. It, the Bible talks about from faith to faith. And we see this like living, breathing, like the breath of God moving in and out, exhaling. It's a living faith. But for the Augustinian, they have to say, no, the Holy Spirit has to come in. And they hate the analogy, but this is really what it boils down to is flip a switch. For the Calvinist, only the regenerate get the switch flipped. Mm -hmm. For the Arminian, they get the switch flipped, but then the person is free to go up there and flip it off, you know, and say, no, I don't want that. In our view, there is no switch. You're, you're just so enabled, and then you're, con you're, you're, you're justifiably condemned or redeemed based off of your response to that. You're accountable. If you reject the provision for God, that's on you. Awesome. Okay, cool. So just one quick little uh, follow-up question, kind of challenging your premise against the mm -hmm. Augustinian presupposition here. Um, okay, so number one, what do you make of certain scriptures that uh, speak of us being born in iniquity uh, uh, and sinners? And also, because uh, I know you're into doing psycho psychology studies and stuff, that there have been studies that prove that even little babies actually have a basic understanding of the difference between good and evil. And look, no one needs to teach these people that they, they do sinful actions. A, a kid will just automatically lie to the point where as parents were like, who, who taught you to say that or to do that kind of thing. So some people will look, even these innocent little kids have this natural uh, inability to stop sinning or to not sin and stuff. So yeah, what do you make of the scripture aspect and then just those are, those are two involved questions uh dale the man from toronto has come with his heavy hitting so um i'm <laughs> gonna go i'm gonna go first with the the teaching of the babies and then if i get off track please wave me down and say hey your ADHD, you know adhd is getting out of control let's go to scripture now but when you're looking at a child uh in the hebrew understanding Okay, let's go back to like the Old Testament. Um, when God was creating man, he created man with desires. He created man with desires for spiritual things, and he created man with desires for worldly things, both of which are needed for us to thrive, mature, and survive. So when we're talking about sin, we're talking not about desiring God, but we're talking about 
like the worldly desires. So when God created us, he created us with taste buds to enjoy eating and a myriad of trees and, and fruits and things to eat and enjoy that process. And he blessed that desire and called it good. Today, we can surrender to that appetite and give ourselves over to gluttony. It's a misuse of a godly appetite. It's not ruling over it, but it's letting us, it's, it's letting it rule over us so that we become what the New Testament would call the sukikos or the animal soul, the animal man. Um, the same thing with like our sexual drives. God created woman out of the side of Adam, told them both to be fruitful, multiply. He gave them the equipment and made it very pleasurable so that we would enjoy making tons of babies. And he blessed it and he called it good. But today we can give ourselves over to that appetite and commit all sorts of in, uh, infidelity. We can, we can create um, various sexual sins, pornography, all sorts of things as a result of not ruling over that and giving ourselves over and being sub, uh, submitted to that. So in the ancient Hebrew sense, they would call those, those desires are yetzer. The, the, the desire for the things above would be the yetzer hatov, and the desire for the animalistic sort of things would be the yetzer hara. And they would call it the evil desire. That's what that translates as yetzer hara would be evil desire. But it doesn't mean the desire itself is evil, but it's a desire that can lead to evil, thus needs to be ruled over but God blessed the Yetzer Hara in Genesis 3. So this would be more of like what the Midrashim would say, um, you know, um, ancient rabbis, rabbinic literature. This is their commentary on the anthropology of man. So let's apply that to your question about children, okay? In, in order for them to grow and mature and become healthy adults, you want them to live in your basement for as long as you're alive as their parent, right? No, we want them to grow and mature and become self-sufficient adults who are like, dad, I'm out of here. Like, you're not the boss of me. I'm going to get in a job. And you know what? I'm going to get married. I'm going to have a family. And yeah, we're going to come back for Christmas and Thanksgiving. And then when I'm in my 30s and 40s, I'll realize just how wise you are. Like, that's the way things are designed to get us out of the house, to, to get us uh, being fruitful and multiplying. And so what, what happens is when children are growing, they are pressing on invisible boundaries and they're learning where those are. And it's the parent's job to say, you're ready, you're not ready. You're ready, you're not ready. The mistake Augustinian parents make is in seeing a child operating on their God-given desire to test those boundaries as they're maturing and they see that in and of itself as sin and punish it instead of recognizing it as it is and saying, you're not ready, no. Yes, no, yes. And so what happens is, is we tend to punish good godly behavior, identifying it as sin. We'll hear pastors say if they're crying, it's because they're lying, they're manipulating, they're just communicating. Now, there is a process in which a child grows and matures, and they start to learn the difference between good and evil. The mistake I think that was inherent in your question was, you don't have to teach a child to lie. I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that. When you go to a newborn and you set aside our Augustinian lenses and you go to a newborn and you let them get to the point where they can understand you maybe eight months, 12 months, 18 months, 
and you go to that child and you go, did you just take a cookie? They'll be like, uh-huh. You're not supposed to do that. What do you do? You punish them. So you're teaching the child. They can't trust you with the honesty. So then you're actually conditioning them and training them to lie because they're trying to escape the punishment. So I would say that we're actually teaching children to lie. But also, um, it's something that they're, they're learning by interacting with us. But you also see a child who gets a cookie and they see their sibling wants it. And you'll see them in an altruistic sort of loving way hand it off to their sibling or they'll eat an ice cream and they'll hold it off and let them take a lick. So children are also motivated out of selfless reasons as well. But I would say that all too often what we're seeing is anecdotal and it's being misidentified. And we're actually creating and teaching. The Bible says, you know, fathers don't provoke your children to anger. And I would say in many cases, we're actually provoking our children to sin because we're misidentifying those good godly behaviors where they're just trying to learn where the boundaries are so that they can mature and grow and eventually leave the house, which is what we want. But along the way, sin does enter into the equation. Along the way, they do become aware, like in Isaiah 7, it's not 14, maybe 7, 15 or 17. Uh, speaking of the one of the, um, uh, this, this passage is claimed to be messianic in prophecy. But it says before he the the youth is able to um, reject the evil and accept the good. Um, there's an age where we become aware of these things. Um, Genesis eight twenty one uh, is often misunderstood. It, you know, it says from the, the imagination of man's heart is set on wickedness uh, from his youth. But it's really, uh oh, what just happened? Did I? Oh, my screen just went dead. Uh, I'm back. Sorry. Yeah, you're good. Um, it's Isaiah. I didn't realize my screen my screensaver was on. But in Genesis 8:21, God is telling us that the imagination of man's heart becomes set on wickedness by his young adult years. It's a process of hardening. Um, and so what happens is, is as we get older, as we become more aware, of our cognitive abilities develop, as we become aware of right and wrong, and we choose that then we're actually willfully committing sin. And then at that point, each and every one of us experiences our own unique fall, not in the similitude of, of Adam. We're not sinning in the same fashion as Adam, but we're experiencing our own fall where we're choosing sin. Um, it can be due to weakness. It can be due to fear. It can be due to ignorance. It can be due to um, rebellion. There's all sorts of motivators on why people will sin. But ultimately we do, and we become uh, guilty at that time uh, for that. But we can still then cry out to God and say, forgive me. I remember I was in fifth grade, and I knew if I got my mom talking about the things of the Lord, I could stay up late. It was a school night. So I went in there. I was like, Mom, I got a question about the Lord. What about the Bible says over here? And I'm staying up. It's, it's about 45 minutes in, and she's telling me, and I'm trying to figure out other questions because I don't feel like going to bed. And I fell under conviction for what I was doing because we read a little passage in the Bible and I understood it. And I said, Mom, I got something to confess. And she's like, what? And I said, I came out here not wanting to go to bed. I wanted to talk to you about staying up late. And that Bible verse you just read convicted me. And I didn't come out here to want to talk about the Lord. I just didn't want to go to bed. And that's when I prayed, confessed, asked the Lord into my heart and to forgive me and save me from my sins and it was an instantaneous, I'm a sinner, 
oh my gosh, I need to be saved. Boom. Right then, fifth grade, that was my testimony in a very condensed nutshell. But that's generally how I see children. Um, they're not created um, these vipers and diapers. They're, they're, you know, like Paul Washer said, like if that little infant was 18 years old, he'd kill you where you stand. You know, Vadi Bakum is like, children are evil. John MacArthur says having children is the greatest act of depravity uh, man can show because he's creating a sinner. That's Gnosticism. I'm sorry. John MacArthur was teaching Gnosticism that having children is sin because you're creating sin in the flesh. That that setting that aside, let's look at the Bible passage you brought up. Psalm 51 5, right? So Psalm 51 5. Uh, if you go and you look at the Hebrew and you do a extensive word study here, David is not saying that he was created with a sinful nature, guilty, possessing Adam's sin, uh, spiritually dead, unable, um, needing pre-faith regeneration. He's not teaching any Augustinian anthropology here whatsoever. What David is doing, this is set in the context of 2 Samuel chapter 12, where the prophet uh, has come to David and confronted him for his adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband, Uriah. And he says, the child that is over there right now, that little boy, going to die. David goes into his chambers, refuses to eat, drink, bathe. He falls on his, faith, on his face, begins um, petitioning God, saying, please spare this innocent child. God says, I'm sorry. This child is going to suffer a consequence of your sin, even though it's innocent. David is told by the prophet, God, you've repented. God has heard you. He believes you. He forgives you. Your sin has been put away. David leaves and says, okay, I'm washing my face. I'm going on. The child died. His, his attendants come to him and they go, what, 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 what? When the child lived, you were weeping and crying and wouldn't eat or bathe. And now the child died. You're eating, you're drinking, you're bathing. What gives? David said, he can't come to me, but I can go to him. So David is saying, I've just been told by God that I'm forgiven, right? I'm not condemned. So David is saying he knows where he's going, whether it's to Sheol or heaven, that baby's there waiting for him with the righteous. So he's confessing that baby ontologically is innocent, is going to heaven. Psalm 51.5, David is this is occurring in that 2 Samuel setting. Imagine Psalm 51 being written on the floor of David's chamber as he's petitioning God to save the baby. This isn't a prayer of intercession. So he says that my sin is ever before me. What sin is that? Is that his arm? Is it his sin nature? Or is it Bathsheba who's pregnant? Is it the child? Is it the people around him that constantly remind him that he, he murdered Uriah? This is the sin that's ever before him. The guilt that he's been confronted with is ever before him. And then David comes in and he confesses, and he's trying to draw a parallel between himself and this child. And, and this is before the, I believe this is before the baby had actually died. And so David is saying, look, I was conceived in sin and I lived. My child is conceived in sin. And yet I'm being told they're going to perish. Spare them as you spared me. This is a prayer of intercession. So if you look at this and you click on the word um, Yecham, I believe that's uh, 31. Uh, let me zoom in on this. 3179. 
Uh, it's translated as conceived me. This word is only used to describe animals and heat mating, the, the forge of a blacksmith, or the bloodlust of a murderer. So those are our three meanings in scripture. So David is saying he was created in the forge of a blacksmith. That doesn't make sense. He was created in a murderous rage. That doesn't make sense. Or he was created like an animal in heat. And given the context of his sin with Bathsheba, that makes more sense. So this gives us some contextual clues that the poet king is saying, look, my parents sinned and I was born and you let me live. Um, and it goes on. There's a lot more I could dig into here. The ancient rabbis said that essentially um, Jesse, who was David's dad, was worried about having a legitimate um, offspring. And there were some questions between him and his wife as to whether or not they were both truly um, capable of having a true uh, Israelite child, even though they'd had a bunch of children together. So Jesse puts away uh, uh, Nitzvah, I think is her name, and he sends her away. And she's like, no, 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 you're my husband. And she finds out that Jesse intends to lie with her servant to have children. And so her and her servant say, well, hey, remember what happened to Tamar? Why don't you dress up like your ancestor, pretend like you're me, and go in there and lay with your husband so I don't have to? And that's how David was conceived. So that's the Jewish tradition, was not through adultery, but through a dysfunctional, broken family unit where the husband had put away the wife, and the wife pretended to be him, and he came in and rutted on her like an animal in heat. And so that's also why in, in the Psalms, David says his brothers didn't see him as a kinsman. They didn't see him as... as family. He's, it's why the drunks sing songs of him at the at the gate. It's why when uh, the prophet came and told Jesse to bring his sons out, it, it's, it's why Jesse left David out there and didn't bring him in. It's why Jesse was having his son out there with lions and bears uh, at risk with nothing but a slingshot. And so he was he was mocked and belittled and thought of to be a product of adultery because his mother never said what had happened. She allowed her husband to think that she had been unfaithful, even though he'd sent her away. So it was great sin in their family and shame, according to the, the, the Jewish uh, rabbinic tradition. And so when David is talking about this, he's referencing his own sinful conception, contrasting it against um, the, the sin that he had had with Bathsheba. But if you look at the Hebrew, even if you want to throw out the entire rabbinic tradition and go, hey, they're Jewish. What do they know about their own tradition? And we could just... Let's let's pretend we're Martin Luther and we we want to go and baptize him in the Elbe, you know, like we're we're let's just say like we're writing some really defamatory stuff here, hmm. which I'm not, by the way. Love my Jewish brothers, um, and I mean that not in a Christian sense, but in a Adam sons of Adam, C.S. Lewis sort of sense. But um, I don't. You never know what you're going to get called out for on the internet. I'm telling you, it's weird <laughs> out here, bub. There's landmines <laughs> everywhere. Um, but even if you want to throw out um, the the ancient rabbis, there's nothing in Psalm 51.5 that speaks of an inherited guilt, inherited sinful nature from Adam, um, total inability, uh, ontological change from Adam. Uh, and, and in fact, it's just talking about the setting of his sin, of his conception. The setting was a sinful act. So as I like to often joke, if I was conceived in the back of a Ford Taurus, I wouldn't be born with the nature of a four-door sedan. So the setting of my conception, what my parents were doing when I was conceived, 
doesn't change me ontologically. Hmm. And so David was saying, hey, look, my parents did something they shouldn't. I'm the product, just like me and Bathsheba. That child was the product. He's not saying we're guilty. He's not condemning his infant son to hell for his own infidelity, let alone Adam's sin. Um, and so that's one of the key verses that I ran to when I when I came out of Calvinism, because that was like the big one that I thought. And then as I started studying it, I was like, there's no Augustinian anthropology at all in this passage. Awesome. Thanks so much. And yeah, I'll turn it to Josh if he has questions. I can ramble. Tell me, just wave me down. Tell oh, me to that shut was up. great. That was great. Oh man, I, I oh, I'm just sitting over here nodding endlessly. This is fantastic. I, I feel like I feel like this is the least I've had to talk to articulate the view that I have in a long time. Uh, so you know, if we sped it up, Josh, it'd look like you're moshing. Right. I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So okay. I, I well, it's it's funny because Dale asked like probably the most pointed, relevant questions here to this issue. Leave it to our Canadian friend to the north. Right. I mean, I, cream like, soda, milk and bags, it, it does it every time. So. Man, as 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 a I would say as a uh relatively proficient question forager myself, I am impressed by both of those. Uh but but as far as the as far as the 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 children, let's say developmentally or psychologically, uh um you know because the, the the example he gave was uh, a child will lie they you don't have to teach a child how to proficiently lie they'll just lie it's like i mean kind of i don't know that they know that it is a lie explicitly in the way that we would describe it as the opposite of something that's true or factual or whatever but in the context of a child and you're looking at the world you have the child who's its own size and by point of reference and perspective, everything is massive. Everything is overwhelming. Everything is the first time that you encounter it. And the adults not only being the source of life and provision and all the things that we need from parents are also a source of terror because they're huge and they're powerful and they rule the world. It's just the world that you're born into. Nobody is going to be a baby and outpower their parents. We're babies versus giants. And literally the only line of defense you have at that point is verbal negation, is to tell something that's a, this what we call white lies, little fibs that kids play that you, as you pointed out, is something that's to try to escape the idea of uh, a negative reinforcement for something that they've done, that they oh, shouldn't Josh, have done. I've, I've seen this. I've seen a, a, a parent come in and say, you know, did you do this? Inferring that they're going to spank the child. I've seen the child say no, not to the question, but to what they perceive is coming, which is the spanking. Exactly. Then they get spanked for lying. And, and yeah. so I would, I would dare suggest, and, and this, is, this is an assumption on my part, but I would dare suggest that that is the way most children are taught what a lie is, hmm. is... I'm going to punish you because of what you did. They reject the spanking. And then you say, that's a lie. I'm coming after you now. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. I could have said no. And then here's the other thing. Have you ever seen a parent say, I know you're lying. You're not very good at it. You're lying. I can tell. What, is, what are we telling the kids? Practice makes perfect, <laughs> right? We're teaching our children in the way they need to go. Maybe if you were better at this, you wouldn't be getting in trouble. 
So right. as parents, we're, it's not it's not just our motives that we've got to be careful about, but it's the way that we're conveying that. It's what's being inferred or interpreted or misunderstood by the by the child as they're learning and processing all this. And most people will tell you, you believe the action more than you do the words. And children are very dialed in on the action more than they are on the verbal cues. So they're responding to what they see coming. And that's usually discipline. And they're like, no, 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 no. They're trying to escape it, not necessarily lying about it. But ultimately, they do figure out what a lie is. I mean, Adam did not learn what a lie was. He was shown by the serpent and by his wife. You know, so Eve did not know instinctively what a lie was. She was lied to by by the serpent. She was tricked. And so, you know, I would I would go back to Adam and Eve. Nobody had to teach them. No, they actually they did. And and we've been we've been suffering that vicious cycle ever since, which is why God consigned all of us to mortality and death, quarantining quarantining us all under sin so that he could come in and have provision for all brought that full circle it, it well yeah no exactly and i i i i agree that what we do as parents i'm including myself because i am a parent and i've caught myself saying exactly what you just said i can tell i look at my son and be like dude i know you're like the smartest kid in the room seriously why would you think that you can get away with lying you're not even a good liar right and I, I'm telling him this because in my head, I'm saying, I know you're an honest person. You don't even like lying. You're not even like, you don't do it enough to be good at it. Why are you doing it? Right. Mm -hmm. And instead of saying, I know you would like to tell me the truth. Are you afraid of what I'll say? Which is a very different question than I know you're lying. Why are you lying? Right. And so often, often what this is, is us as adults let's say lacking awareness of what the impact of our words would be, right? Lacking the awareness of what the impact of our actions or non-action would be in Amen. the future in the way that kids develop, especially the first time that like, th think about this as a hermeneutic principle. The first time a word comes up in the scripture it informs every other time that word will show up. And guess mm -hmm. what? Every time your child interacts with something for the first time, it will be what informs them of every other instance that they interact with that thing. And so all of this is relevant to say that when when we're born, being born into a world in which we are, let's say, hemmed in on all sides by things that give us what our inflamed passions will want, and then being raised in a world that lies to us continually saying that feeding those inflamed passions is not only good and fun, but acceptable and even should be promoted, right? Um, and then you have on the other end of this also what we understand to be the tempter himself, that there's like there's a spiritual warfare going on and we're not simply left to a world that's inconvenient, but God, God's there and, and, and he loves you and it's all going to be okay because there's really no opposition. It's like, no, we know that we have an enemy, yeah. right? And so it's like taking into account all three of these things, when we say that somebody is born into a world that allows for the proclivity for sin, what we're not saying is that they have to be born sinful in order to be that. 
right? You can be tempted to sin without having a nature that corresponds to desiring sin naturally or even performing sin naturally. And when we say nature, what we actually mean is by design, because I don't think anybody here affirms mother nature. Yeah. Uh, so by nature, what we mean is by design. And so saying somebody has a nature that is sinful is to say they were designed for sin. And I think that if we if we pay careful attention for our for our words and the impact that they're having in these conversations, especially on the like surface, uh, you know, novice colloquial kind of level, when you say sin nature and then you tell somebody that they're born sinful, they're born with a nature that is sinful and then they question for themselves, well, then like what? What am I supposed to do? Like, how am I supposed to? And then this is the staging of the problem that you were pointing out earlier that you don't think exists. My my question to kind of come back a little bit toward the 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 the, the contention here of the the debate about being born sinful and being able to respond to the gospel. How would you distinguish between the inability to fulfill the law and the inability to accept a reconciliation from the one who fulfilled the law. Because obviously, I, I I don't think those are the same thing. I don't think you think those are the same thing. But I don't want to commandeer the conversation and start just saying, you know what I mean? So yeah, how, I mean, how I was listening to I was listening to Braxton Hunter on, and Leighton Flowers today. And I don't know if it was their live stream or if it was an old video. Um, Braxton was asked a similar question. And he made a very good clarification that I think is worth noting. Um, when you say that it that it's impossible for someone not to sin, you're you're making a, a very hard claim regarding their their inability to escape sin. And God tells us He always provides an out. So what we really are saying is that while it's possible, it's improbable given X, Y, and Z. So it's possible to fulfill the law, but improbable given our innate weakness, our environment, our uh, inability to properly understand things. There's, there's, so there's, so eventually, given the law of probability, we all succumb, we all fall, right? And so the law was taught, was was brought to to teach us and to to show us our need and to cry out to God. The law was motivated by the love of God to be a restorative like a salve, right? We, we, we have Adam saying, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm, I'm not submitting to you. And then we see, you know, generation after generation after generation going away from God. And um, God gives us the law as a means of showing us our inadequacies to say, it, it's not good enough. You need help. Come back to me. The spirit of the law was love. The spirit of the law was God trying to show us our innate need to call us back home. But the letter of the law is nothing more than condemnation. You know, it'll, it'll only, it doesn't, doesn't build up those uh, who adhere. It's a, it becomes a form of bondage and those who break it are just condemned. Um, but you, I think you see the love of God at work there. Um, but I don't, I don't think that we have an inability to obey the law. But I think we're in an environment such that the probability is is such that eventually we will will stumble, especially when you understand the heart of the law as Christ revealed it. Any man who looks upon a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her. Like you've already broken the spirit of the law. 
right? Not the the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And it's supposed to show us our need. It's supposed to show us um, this, this, um, this um, inability that we have to live perfect, righteous lives, not an inability to confess that. And so I, I think that's the point that you're making is that we, we, we can struggle. We can have um, circumstances and a weak, a weak nature. I don't like calling it sinful nature, but a weak nature. Uh, you know, we can have circumstances such to where eventually we'll be deceived, tricked or rebellious or tempted and give in. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, it was uh, designed that way. God never created Adam and Eve and placed them in a, a place of temptation. Going east, you guys would, would, would appreciate this. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not, as the free will theodicy often presents it, a means of tempting Adam to give him a choice between A and B. It was never a source of temptation. It was a temporary prohibition, according to the early church fathers, that when Adam matured would be lifted so that he could eat free of that prohibition. And thus, behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, but apart from sin, rather through obedience. So God never created Adam to be in a place of temptation, which is where we find ourselves. So we can we can see the world that we're in. We can confess the world that we're in. We can see our weakness. We can see our, our, our stupidity and ignorance. We can see um, our rebelliousness, and we can confess that. We're not unable to do that, especially when we hear the work of God in Christ, especially when someone who is a follower of Christ presents this to another person and gives them the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. So I, I, I don't see any innate ontological inability anywhere in the text of Scripture. Um, and we can get more into the actual debate um, if, you, if you'd like. But I, I don't think that there is an inability to confess our need for God or an inability to accept him when he comes at the door and knocks, whether it's through somebody reading a, a Gideon tract or there's someone giving you the gospel or a buddy over lunch telling you, man, you're never going to believe what the Lord did for me and my wife today. You can respond to that. You really can. So I have, I have one, one more follow-up question that I think probably will be a good segue into the actual debate is I've, and I've heard it, I've heard it explained this way. And so I kind of want to get your take on, on how you would respond to this is, um, the, the gospel itself is seen as, let's say, a command from God to repent and to believe. And I've heard it, let's say, loosely put that the commands of God are, in essence, the law of God, right? And if the law of God, at least the law that was written in the Old Testament, are the commands of God, namely the Ten Commandments and their articulation later on, that this additional commandment in the New Testament is of the same type, that we can't we can't respond to it in a way that is appropriate and perfect, and therefore we need something else to accompany that in our response, namely that supernatural awakening from the Spirit and so forth. Are you, are you understanding what I'm asking? Well, I mean, if, if you're saying that the gospel is a command to repent and believe, but just as we are inevitably going to fail at maintaining the law perfectly, 
that inevitably we're going to fail to repent and believe? I, I'm um, not sure well, I see a perfect it, correlation there, and it may just be a misunderstanding. But well, I, no, it's not necessarily that we'll we'll fail to repent and believe, but that we fail to we fail to repent and believe in a way that is an appropriate response to the the gospel message that would, in some way, let's say, um, it's hard to. It, I think I think it's hard to articulate this without trying to assume a mechanistic view of of you know, repentance, mm -hmm. uh, regeneration and sanctification and so forth afterward. So kind of in the framework of the Calvinist Arminian debate, there's this kind of mechanism, right? That, that your repentance is in some sense, a part of that mechanism unfolding, right? So in that sense, is this something that's wholly different than what you mean? Uh, is that, is that the issue is that this is not seen as something like a mechanism that's a cause and effect kind of thing, but something else. Yeah, I think within the Augustinian uh, worldview, we're viewed more as input-output devices. So if God does this, then we will do this. Um, if you do this, then I will do this. And so um, I think I think that in that same sort of input-output kind of machinery, they look and they go, well, because we're presupposing the machine is broken, the input output won't work unless God comes in and fixes the machinery. So I think I think that's the way that they they tend to view that. Um, you know, and then the other issue that you run into too is when variations and 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 different definitions of sovereignty will color the conversation because they don't want to give man credit, and they see even just believing or accepting the gospel as somehow meritorious. I'm not saying everyone does this, but this is one of the problems that you'll see often brought up. Even atheist, I was on Pine Creek and he mentioned this. And it was just like, well, no, if you believe the gospel, that's meritorious. If you accept the gift, that's meritorious. And it's like- I think that not... was probably the second half of what I was trying to get out with my question is that um, in some sense, fulfilling the law is doing what you ought. And then the blessing that was promised with the law was let's say the uh, the the- the just reward for what was what was uh, uh, accomplished in the law, mm -hmm. let's say. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was probably the second half that I was not not getting out is the idea that that responding to the gospel is even though it's a command is not meritorious in the same way that, let's say, um, you know, doing good work and receiving a paycheck, this kind of uh, relationship. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think you answered that really well, actually. Good, I think, good, I think good. you anticipated the rest of the question. All right, guys. So thank you for that. And by the way, Dale has a, uh, very interesting relationship with Pine Creek, Doug. And so that's something y'all have in common, <laughs> but, uh, all right guys. Yeah. So we are past the one hour mark right now. So let us get into the debate. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk about, uh, so I've got three clips and then at the end of this, if we can, uh, power through this in less than 45 minutes. We do have four audience questions um, that I would like to get to, as well as one more question about Ezekiel 36 from me. And so, uh, but let's uh, let's do this. So let me share. All right, can you guys see that? Oh wait, no, you don't. How about there? We go. Okay. 
So let me full screen it and then we will start. So my timestamp is originally at the 3221 mark, but it won't let me go there. So 3208 is where we'll start and then we'll stop here in just a second. Gods with Romans 116, that it is the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation, as it instead shifts the power from the gospel itself to prevenient enabling grace as the cure for our inability. But yet another issue also arises. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 tells us, quote, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who fear of uh, through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For clearly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brothers, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. You see, a central tenet of the Christian faith is that the incarnation itself played a pivotal role in our healing and redemption, that Jesus assumed the totality of the human condition, this side of Eden, so as to redeem, heal, and restore us, delivering us from death to life. Yet, total depravity asserts that our flesh, will, soul, and intellect are stained by sin, imputed with Adam's guilt, and under the wrath of God the moment we come into existence. And therein it corrupts the incarnation of Christ, as described in Scripture, that he shared in our flesh and blood, becoming a descendant of Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, Mary, assuming our nature and being made like us in all things. So, to get around this, we see adherents claim Jesus did not incarnate, as Hebrews 2 describes, but instead they'll argue he assumed a pre-fall Adamic nature, which was not stained by sin or subject to death, nor did it need healing and redemption, and therein they deny the incarnation's essential role in our healing and deliverance. But yeah. Okay, so help me flesh this out, Warren. If total depravity is true and proponents of total depravity denied Jesus as having a sin nature, they are then in turn denying the incarnation because he wasn't made like us in every respect. Is that is that accurate? You're muted, Warren, just so you know. Thank you. <laughs> One of the things that will happen when I bring up uh, the biblical ontology that Christ assumed, they'll say, well, Jesus didn't have ovaries. Mm. I'm bald. Are you saying Jesus was bald? I like basketball. Did Jesus have to play basketball? And so what they'll do is they'll appeal to things that the sons of Abraham would not have had in common to deny the very entailment of their own claim that all men, apart from Christ, um, they're, they're going to try and deny that through way of a virgin birth or immaculate conception. But the claim is, is that all men have been born totally depraved, created in the womb, if you believe in creationism or traducianism, maybe through mechanistic kind of deistic means. Um, but all men possess this totally depraved ontology, which is something that the sons of Abraham would have shared in common. I mean, of all things, that one of them may have been born without a thumb, but he would have had the totally depraved nature had he been, you know, born according to total the claims of total depravity. And so I'll note this and I'll say, well, this says that Jesus assumed that same ontology, that he, he had the things that they share in common. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And they go, well, no, 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 the virgin birth. And I go, well, you're denying this. 
First John 4, 2 and 3 says, anyone who denies that the Son came in flesh and blood, that's the spirit of Antichrist. That's how we know that. Well, we believe he came in flesh and blood like Adam's flesh and blood. Well, when you, when you read the New Testament authors, what you have to understand is when they're talking about flesh and blood, they're not talking about this mm -hmm. only. They're talking about human nature, the things that we have this side of, of, um, of, of Eden. And so this will even get into your redemptive theology, which I'm sure you're on a beautiful journey rediscovering the ancient redemptive uh, work of Christ mm -hmm. as opposed to modern Protestant uh, penal substitutionary. Another topic. Wait for my next 15-part episode series coming out on that one. Oh. But um, but yeah, so when we, when we see in Hebrews, uh, and it talks about how he shared in everything that they had, that would assume the totality of everything they had in common. If total depravity is true, that would be one of the things they had in common. But if Christ assumed a totally depraved nature, he's not the perfect spotless uh, lamb without blemish. He is a guilty, totally depraved, totally unable, spiritually dead sinner who can't redeem us. So what they have to do is deny he assumed, they, they flat out deny incarnational theology of Hebrews 2, and they'll say he had a pre-fall Adam nature. Well, Adam didn't need redeeming prior to, to, to the fall. So what good does it do to redeem Adam in, a, in, an, in an Adamic state when he didn't need redeeming? It, it does nothing for you and me. That's wonderful for everyone who's not fallen, but that doesn't do anything for you and me. Or they'll say, well, it's like when, when we're uh, resurrected with perfect bodies and we're living with the Lord in heaven or the kingdom. You know, we're, we're not going to sin then. You know, we're going to have that kind of nature. Well, it doesn't, that's not what Hebrews says. It doesn't say he came like Adam before the fall. And it doesn't say he came like all of us will be when we see him, we'll be like him. It says everything the sons of Abraham had in common, he shared in, in every respect, in all things. And so this right here, if you affirm total depravity, you've corrupted the incarnation. So you're only out is to appeal to Mary's immaculate conception, which then says, well, she didn't need a savior. Or you appeal to, sorry about this. I know you guys are you. Um, <laughs> but straw man. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but, or you appeal, or you appeal, or you appeal to the virgin uh, virgin conception and you go, well, that, that spared him our nature. Wait a minute. Wait, Isaiah tells us that the virgin will conceive and that'll be a sign that he's the Messiah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say it's going to spare him the very thing he's assuming to redeem us of, you know? So when you get into incarnational theology, you run into some real major problems um, when you're, when you're considering the impact of total depravity, it's just, it's, it's a mess. And I think Hebrews two demonstrates it quite clearly but you will encounter that Starbucks fallacy of they'll say, well, Jesus didn't drink a Frappuccino, so he wasn't like me. It's like, well, that's not something that the sons of Abraham had in common, but total depravity is, if you were being honest. Yeah, and see, you read my mind, Warren, uh, because that was the second part of that question. I was actually going to appeal to the virgin birth and say that, you know, most Protestants appeal to this verse as more of a generalization versus a specific, right? And uh, and so I really, really like your answer uh, to that. I know this conversation came up uh, in a group chat that I'm a part of, Josh's as well, called Reorienting. And I know uh, our friend Garrett Skytema brought this uh, up to my attention because I didn't realize that I was conflating both Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 
to say something that the Bible doesn't say. And I think a lot of us, uh, or maybe I'm just the only one. I mean, I, I make mistakes. No, it's very right? common. It's very okay. common. So to assume that Jesus was made like us in every respect and yet without sin. And I didn't realize, bro, those are two completely different verses. Yeah. Um, one is Hebrews 2 is making an ontological claim. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 4 is saying that he appeared to be like us, but did not sin. So right. he, he was like he was one of us. He had the similitude of us. He came in the sameness as us, but did not sin. Mm -hmm. So the, Hebrews 2 is ontological. Hebrews 4 is talking about behavior. It's mm. talking about action. Right. And temptation not, not is the main run with uh, with Hebrews 4, right? Like that's the main context in dealing. Mm -hmm. Jesus was tempted in every way like us, and yet he did not sin. He overcame it. Yep. Um, okay, fair enough. So, Josh, let me go to you first, and then we'll get Dell's opinion uh, on this uh, since you're part of the reorienting chat, Josh. Uh, what, do, what do you think about Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4? And the way Warren describes it here, I think I think the coming together of those two texts is really important here. If we're going to talk about the idea of sin nature as such, right. and what its 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 impact, its reach, let's say, is that the inevitability of sin, because we have a nature that corresponds with sin, is almost the assumption that in order to desire sin, you need a nature that corresponds with sin, or in order to uh, have this base proclivity towards sin and experience that that depth of temptation, you have to be born with a sin nature. And yet it's not just that Christ was made like us in every respect, but also that he was tempted at all points, mm -hmm. yet without sin. And so it kind of, I think, almost uh, gives natural rise to the question, how in the world was Jesus tempted by anything if he had no nature that corresponded to sin? from whence comes the temptation. And I think then this automatically, in some sense, has to give uh, some pause uh, for that person to either go on the retreat or simply say, you don't need a sin nature to be tempted. Um, and so I, I think... Yeah, what will happen is they'll read it like the devil tried to tempt Jesus, but it wasn't a real temptation. But right. scripture well, says Jesus suffered through those temptations. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That 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 the, this was something that he had to endure, um, and so and and in endurance, like especially in the scripture, uh, it gives the impression of remaining under the weight or burden of something, mm -hmm. right? And so, if temptation was in any real sense that burden to him, then they had to be real temptations. Now, this is a it's a different question from whether or not Jesus could have actually performed sin and remained himself. I think that's a separate question. Mm -hmm. But the experience, the actual experience of temptation uh, and being made like us in every respect, um, I think is something that if you take those two things together, uh, uh, that, that you actually get this holistic picture of Jesus sharing in our humanity in every way, but not sharing in the experience in every way because he didn't actually fall into sin. He merely withstood everything that we fail to withstand, something like that. Yeah, I mean, if 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 Jesus is in the, the wilderness and he's fasting for 40 days and, I, and you come up to him and you've got, you know, his favorite dish that, that Mary used to make for him, Right. That's that's going to he's going to smell it. It's going to play like if you ever fasted, you smell it and your your belly. You weren't even hungry a few minutes ago, but your belly starts 
rumbling and you 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 all of a sudden you're feeling the hunger you're like i was fine until i smelled that i went like all these days without even being tempted at all or even wanting to but now that smell my stomach is reacting to it it's pulling me towards it jesus didn't give into that it was he still had he still had a a physical reaction he, he's he still has uh instincts and appetites and um senses and all of that um and and, and the devil tempted him not just just you know with with a, his mom's favorite dish but said look you know you don't have to go to the cross you know the, worship me I'll, I'll give you all this and and uh jesus knew what was coming he's in the garden of gethsemane sweating drops of blood praying over this he knew what was coming this this idea to to escape that agony that that was a temptation that was very real and he with he withstood it he conquered it he endured it and in the process he redeemed us and it, it's beautiful display of love that he went through all this for us but um but no he had he had real temptation but if you if you say that if you say that Jesus did not have our ontology then you're saying he did not assume our nature so as to redeem it so who the heck did Jesus redeem no one and who was that's he why that's why it's an temptation I'm sorry who, who who was it that he was sympathizing with in his temptation yeah if not those who are tempted and fail Hebrews 2 again that he endured these things so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to make uh, uh, propitiation for the sins of the people. He himself has been tempted. He endured. He understands. He's relating. He gets it. Um, but if you deny, if you deny the incarnation because of your adherence of Augustinian anthropology, this all goes out the window. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Yeah. Uh, it, it quite. It, it, it quite obviously has salvific ramifications depending on how convinced one is in this and where they go with it you know good deal saint nicholas would come in there and start slapping people if, if they brought this up back in the day various okay good right. so, okay so so in the first place i've got to say it because uh leighton flowers made a bet in his review video that i would say this so oh. flowers, right i think that warren is spot on spot on there's the word for you but uh in in this sense that yeah jesus was actually tempted uh i i i've never heard anyone who would deny that kind of thing on my on my end so i think that that's that's definitely true and that's an inherent part of being a person with a libertarian free will um whereby you don't have active omniscience omnip uh, omnipotence and all of that right when Jesus, during his time of humiliation, he had subconscious omniscience and he had sublimated om omnipotence, so he could be tempted in the same way any other human being could. Um, but here's my here's my question for you, Warren. Then, so it's about so Hebrews chapter two is ontological in nature, and we're almost you know we're almost kind of saying well, having a sin nature is almost like an a, essential part of that, right? So. Um, obviously we make this point by saying, well, look, I'm not bald. Uh, it was Jesus a redhead. What about those poor, those poor mix in, in Scotland and Ireland that are, Jesus didn't die for them. Right. So, uh, no, I think we recognize that it's not talking about accidental or contingent properties, but it's talking about, he took on the human nature in a philosophical sense. That means he had all the, of the essential properties of a human kind of thing, a kind nature as philosophers call it. 
Um, so that's what I think Hebrews is saying. And on that front, that that says nothing about having a sinful disposition. That's just an accidental or contingent property. Um, so what's your take on on that? Like I, I don't think- I don't see total depravity being an accidental property if it's something that is unanimously held by all of the descendants of of Abraham. I, I, you know, going all the way back to Adam, I don't see it as an accidental, like an accidental property is I'm wearing a hat, right? Or my glasses, I can take them off at night. The Cambridge change, oops, sorry. Cambridge change, I become less worn when I take my glasses off. I'm, I'm now back right. to being full worn. But I don't, I don't, I don't see. Prove that, that it is, can, doesn't Adam and Eve pre-fall? Uh, under the Augustinian view, they, they, it was logically possible for them not to have this sinful disposition. And sorry, I won't interrupt again, but yeah. Uh, depending on the, depending on what Augustinian flavor, the Calvinists generally say that God ordained that they sin and that God decreed that they sin, depending on the lapsarian position that they'll hold. Um, that's a big controversy within the, the Calvinist view. Um, uh, you know, Roman Catholics, I, I can't say I'm the biggest uh, expert on Roman Catholicism, um, but I believe generally they would say, that Adam and Eve were free not to sin. Um, the issue for all Augustinians is what is the ontological state of mankind subsequent that act? So I don't see an innate spiritual condition. See, it's not, it's not, it's not just an accidental property. It's that our flesh, will, soul, and intellect are thoroughly corrupt sin itself, depending on what confession you're reading. Like if we're reading the Augsburg, uh, it says this, this, this vice or, or of origin is sin itself. Like the nature is sin. Um, so I, and you know, some people will say, Oh, that's not what it's saying. Well, I mean, show me a translation where it's not saying that. Cause I've read it a hundred times. Um, but I don't see that as being an accidental property, uh, being bald, having one less thumb, having a leg, you know, that, that's got a scar on it, having a freckle on my forehead, being bald or eating Starbucks or having ovaries, those would be accidental. But this Hebrews 2 says, everything that the sons of Abraham shared in, he partook in in every way. So the only way that you could say that that would be an accidental property is if you concede that not all of the offspring of Abraham have it. In that context, that would be my my re- response. It may not be convincing to an Augustinian, but that's the way that I perceive it. Just a clarifying question, real quick: Would the way that Augustine viewed the way that sin was passed down, right? And maybe this is a straw man of Augustine. I don't. I, from what I remember, I think I thought he taught this. He might not have though. Um, but given that sin is uh, passed down through sexual means, right? Would that in and of itself make this a non-accidental property that humans have? It's almost like genetics in a sense. Um, well, we were all, according to, to Augustine, we were all in the, the visual image here, the loins mm-hmm. of Adam, right? Right. Uh, when he sinned. And that, you know, Augustine went back and forth between creationism and traducianism. Okay. And he kind of leaned, traducing in some writings, leaned creation and others. And others, he said he, he just really didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was whatever was expedient to his argument uh, generally was the position that he took. Uh, 
But if you're saying that all of the offspring of, of Adam were in his loins and that we all derive our ontology from him and Christ assumed that same ontology to redeem it, mm -hmm. but was spared an aspect of that ontology because of the virgin conception or, or immaculate conception, that seems to, again, negate the fact that he is sharing in all things ontological that the sons of Abraham shared in, the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Adam. The, the apostles are very careful to link him all the way back to, to Adam, both on Mary and on Joseph's side. They didn't want there to be any question that he was a descendant of Adam. Right. The entire book of 1 John is written to refute Gnostics in the day. Mm -hmm. And they talk about the word becoming flesh and dwelt with us. So the early church was very concerned with saying he's a descendant of Adam, David, Abraham, Noah. Like he, he's he's one of us. He, he shares in our flesh and blood. And by flesh and blood, they mean our ontological nature. It, like they didn't have the same categories that we do now in a lot of ways. But when they would say flesh and blood, they would say uh, nature. And this is why many in the early church getting over to atonement theories would say when he goes into the the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkles his blood. That was just talking about him going up to God with an assumed human nature that was flesh and blood. He didn't literally go in and sprinkle drops of his own blood places, but he went up in there. It was imagery conveying the incarnation, ascending to heaven and carrying us up with him, being seated in heavenly places with him. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that he assumes the totality of human, the human condition to redeem it. This is central to Christianity. Now, if we're willing to give that up in order to maintain an ontology or a redemptive model, I would argue that we've deviated from historic Christianity and now we have something that might wear the label, but is, is not, uh, it would be like Calvin Klein. Like you see the shirts in China, it's mm -hmm. like Calvin Klein. That's the kind of Christianity we have if we strip it away. So I, I would say it's such an essential issue. That's why, First John recognizes it as Antichrist, but I don't right. mean that to cast people out of the kingdom, just as sure. out of warning. Sure. Right on. All right. Let's get to the next timestamp, and then audience, don't fret. We will get to your audience questions uh, right after this. So let me share my screen, and then let's go. Regenerates those who believe in Christ. Faith logically precedes regeneration. So that's uh, um, just part of the, that definition. Okay, um, so the, the gospel is insufficient. So, okay, this one's an interesting one. Um, it's not true. It's a sufficient instrument, but it's an instrument in the hand of God. There's not any additional information that the Holy Spirit reveals to us through provenient grace. And um, so it's not like uh, there's some extra facts that only, you know, believers have or something like that. It's just... Um, so it, it's sufficient in terms of it has all the information it needs. I think what's happening is, is somewhat of a hijacking of terms from a different debate. When we talk about the sufficiency of scriptures, at least like when you read, it, re, read books on the debates with Roman Catholics, it's the formal versus the material sufficiency of scripture. The idea of formal sufficiency of scripture is that all the material that we need to believe is in scripture and it's taught clearly. And that, of course, we affirm. Now, there's no denial in there that we need the Holy Spirit, especially not just for knowledge, because salvation isn't just about information. It's about trust. It's about uh, loving God. So, you know, those those things, um, we certainly need the Holy Spirit. Our problem isn't 
ignorance as, as much as it is uh, a moral problem as to why people hate God because of that foundation, again, which we talked about from the earlier speech, but um, from the garden, um, because uh, we're the seed, uh, we're from the seed of the serpent, we are at enmity with the woman seed, which is Christ. So we're, we're naturally in at enmity and hostile to Christ. That is the total depravity. Okay. Okay. So I want to camp on uh, the last thing that Dan said there with the serpent seed and the the woman seed, which is Christ, that imagery, right? Warren, who would you say? So first of all, let me ask this. Are humans, and I think you would say no on this, but but help me out here. So from the time a human is born, right? Are they at enmity with God? And if not, then who exactly is the serpent seed that Genesis three lays out? So in 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 the Hebrew conception, um, one would say that they've become a son of, like you see with um, Judas, he becomes a son of perdition. Mm -hmm. This wasn't something that he was eternally a son of, but he gave himself over. Um, you, you, this this whole idea of becoming a son of something is to surrender one's life to it. Okay. That can be, um, as we see with, um, oh, um, who who is the, the 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 woman in in the Old Testament? She's like, your God will be my God. Um, Rahab. No, it wasn't Rahab. It was um, Naomi. Oh, oh, I'm showing. I, I would fail the Bible trivia right now. Was it Ruth? That's what yes, I yes. I think it was Ruth. But okay. she was she was like, your God will be my God. And Moab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So in that same sort of sense, like you see this becoming a son of or giving yourself over. Um, and so when you see Genesis, which is um, saying that um, he will bruise your heel. But you, but he will crush his his head. It's talking about the serpent in Christ. Mm -hmm. It's talking about um, not a literal serpent that was striking the heel of Christ, but it was talking about the 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 devil, that that ancient uh, tempter, working through people who had surrendered unto him. Okay. Those were his agents. Pontius Pilate, right, would be one of his agents. The um, the Jewish leaders. The Roman soldiers. These would be agents of the serpent that he had taken power over. What did he tell Christ? Bow down and worship me and all this will be yours. So those, those authority, the, those principalities, those powers, those were his. They had surrendered unto him and he was using those to strike at Christ. Um, so it's imagery basically uh, of drawing a contrast between those who have surrendered unto the, the adversary who have given themselves over to sin and death and those that would follow Christ, those that would, that would believe and trust in him. It's not a literal serpent seed. Right. We're not, we're not affirming, uh, you know, that, you know, Lilith slept with the, uh, the, the devil or anything like that. Right. But it, this is imagery that's denoting loyalty. It, that's really what this is talking about. And it's not an ontological condition at birth. And I think this is clear, too, in passages like Psalm 119, verses 9 and 10. David asks the Lord, he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Mm -hmm. That that has no business being in your Bible other than to be rebuked if total depravity is true. Yeah. 
yeah. keep your way pure, you are created ontologically defiled. You are your your flesh, will, soul, and intellect are stained by sin, naturally hostile. What do you mean, keep your way pure? But God says by guarding it according to His word. Mm. And David later goes on and he says, you know, I have I have I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, and he's like, from my mother's womb, you've been my God, you know. Um, and then you, you see in elsewhere in Scripture, the Bible says that God uh, declares his power and majesty on the, the voices of infants and little ones. Mm -hmm. And he says, you have to become like children in order to enter the kingdom. And they say, oh, that's just childlike faith. Wait, 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 wait. Childlike faith? Where does that have to do with totally depraved vipers who are hostile to God? Childlike faith? You're presupposing the little flying blue invisible aardvark at that point right so let me so let me clarify then real quick so because gmw i think makes a interesting point so he says that there seems like uh there was two groups children of abraham children of the devil and i don't and i don't know but given that john 1 12 says that we become children of god when we believe um are, are we saying that there's like a state of neutrality? Because given that children, right, I don't think my three-year-old daughter has professed allegiance to either Satan or God at this point. She's still trying to learn how to talk, right? Mm -hmm. So is there like a state of neutrality that once... Yeah, in, the person... same, in the same sense that Adam and Eve were in a state of neutrality before okay. they'd made a choice, they were not immortal because they'd eaten from the tree of life. Right. But they also were not subject to death because they hadn't rebelled. Okay. So the early church would say that they were in a state of virtual immortality mm -hmm. and they became condemned to mortality by way of that choice. So it's kind of like Schrodinger's cat. Mm -hmm. You know, they hadn't yet chosen. So if they'd remained in there, they would have had essentially virtual immortality, even though they had, it's more of a conceptual grid to, to understand these things by. Right. So our children are kind of in the same state as Adam and Eve before they sinned. They, they don't have any inherent righteousness. They, they're not the standard of good. Any good that we have, we, we have because God has, has given it to us in the form of those graces we talked about previously. Mm -hmm. Part of being in his image and likeness is that. Um, and so we're, we haven't pledged our allegiance. There's this state of neutrality there. There's this state of innocence. Um, and so when it talks about that we have the right to become children of God, Mm -hmm. um, I think that's speaking more of not just at the state in which we believe, but at the time in which we see him. Okay. Um, I, I see that as more of the culmination of theosis, not the beginning of it. Gotcha. Right on, right on. Hey, Josh, Tyler, uh, yeah. I, was, I was actually going to ask in our, in our conversation, this was probably two summers ago, maybe I don't remember our, that. No. our conversation with JD about the fall. Yeah, uh, you had mentioned two texts, simple uh, te second temple texts, uh, second Ezra and Baruch, I believe. Okay, uh, and one of them was talking about uh, Adam's fall was not Adam's only, but all, uh, but all of the children of Adam also shared in that fall. And then the other text was um, that we also had our fall like Adam individually mm -hmm. that we ourselves sinned and also that would be fell. second baruch second baruch is the one that okay. says okay. that that we each experience our own fall like adam that we weren't in him when he sinned but that we all have our own subsequent uh fall that would be second baruch 
Right. That that was very reminiscent. I, I that's probably what you're talking about then, because that mm -hmm. was very reminiscent of I remember you reading that in that conversation, but I couldn't for the life of me remember which one it came from and where at. I yeah. just I just remembered distinctly that there was that contrast between the two things uh that was being drawn out because that's what we were talking about with JD was actually this idea of right. uh, the fall and the, the 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 consequence of the fall and so forth. So I just wanted to uh, for my own sake, kind of draw that back out. So you said second Baruch. Do you do you remember where uh, in 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 that book? Or, uh, uh, let me pull it up here. I, I had to go hunting for it. Um, well, it's okay. I, if 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 we want to start pulling up the uh, the the audience questions, I don't want to derail. But yeah. I was just I was I was thinking about the relevance of that uh, of that uh, that passage when you when you brought it up back then, and so I just wanted to kind of see if you remembered what that was if you do find a warren throw it in the uh, private chat but i do before we get to the audience questions <clears throat> excuse me i want to give dell a chance to respond uh quickly or ask a uh, a question uh if you have one dell um and then we'll get to the audience questions before our two hour mark yeah no i, I think on this one i'm i'm good uh to save okay. time we can go straight to the audience questions Okay, so the first audience question comes from me. It's not an audience question. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. <laughs> I'm just playing. Um, but I do, if we have time after this, I do want to ask about Ezekiel 36 because I'm just really curious how you would view uh, Ezekiel 36, 26, specifically about the new heart. But our, our first audience question comes from Doug, and he asks, one wonders what Warren means by regeneration. So, Warren, how would you define regeneration? Um, well, and when I'm speaking of that, I'm typically using it in the Augustinian sense that we're created with our flesh, will, soul, and intellect, thoroughly corrupt, stained by sin, spiritually dead, um, naturally incapable of understanding and accepting the, the gospel or spiritual things, um, that we're at enmity with God. So regeneration would be all of those things being made alive in a in a one-to-one -one sort of correlation to like a Lazarus type of death to where our will is now uh, enabled. It's now alive. Our uh, intellect is now alive. Our uh, flesh is now uh, still the same flesh, but we have a theoretical, you know, resurrected flesh. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but essentially it's, it's being made alive. The, the one thing that I'll note, I don't think even Augustinians believe in regeneration. It, it, technically, they believe in generation because regeneration entails that you are returning to a previous state. So Augustinians don't believe in regeneration. It's a word that they use to mean something similar, but they have their own definition associated with it. So regeneration would be a restoration. So if I'm using it like I'm going to use it, like I believe in it, um, it's, a, it's a return to a previous state. It's like becoming a child again. It's it's being pardoned. It's being forgiven. It's being uh, having the fatted calf slain and a big party and saying, my son who is dead is alive again. You're back in daddy's house and daddy's arms. It's a return to life. That's how I mean it. In the Augustinian sense, the strict sense, they don't believe in regeneration. You were created spiritually dead. Now you're being generated spiritually. So it does get a little convoluted, but I hope that helped clarify that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think that makes sense, right? Um, given that, well, I, I love the uh, prodigal son analogy, right? Because it shows, 
I think anyway, um, and it makes sense with Jesus and Nicodemus' statement, you must be born again, right? Um, not born for the first time and not born for the first time in a spiritual sense, but refreshed, renewed. Um, so it implies this, you know, I was once here, then I came here, and then now I'm back, right? So, okay. Um, the next audience question, uh, same person. Uh, if we are born sinless, then war needs to be consistent and admit it's possible that we can stay sinless. If yeah. so, what's the point of Christ? Yeah, we can we can stay sinless. That was what I said before. It, it's a, We're talking about possibility. God always provides a, an opportunity. So when we don't and we sin, that's why we're rightly condemned. What, what happens is, is this is assuming the Augustinian uh, anthropology and, and atonement theory. So if I wasn't created as sin incarnate, then what's the point of Christ taking my sin on and having the wrath of God poured on him um, so that when God sees me, he sees the imputed righteousness of Christ? That's not how the early church understood it. Their, their anthropology is the anthropology that I've espoused here, but their redemptive work comprised of what retroactively has been described as Christus Victor, restored icon, um, moral exemplar model or moral influence, ransom and recapitulation. So what they would see is that Christ assumed the totality of human nature at incarnation, which is essential to our redemption. So every aspect of Christ's ministry here on earth was essential in our redemption. Christ didn't come so that he could enable God's forgiveness. He didn't make God propitious. God was already propitious. He'd already passed over former sins and didn't want to leave those he'd forgiven in Sheol. He wanted to fully redeem and restore them and bring them to life. So Christ, in, in perfect unity with the Father and Spirit, came, assumed the totality of the human condition so as to, to live perfectly. When we talk about him carrying our sicknesses and infirmities, when we talk about him bearing our sins, that's incarnational reference in the early church, not the crucifixion. Augustinians put that emphasis on the crucifixion. Early church put it on the incarnation. That was the assuming of the totality of the human nature to heal, redeem, and restore it, but also to teach us, to show us the heart of the gospel, to show us the heart of God, that God loved us, that he wasn't at enmity with us. Look how much I'm willing to do. Uh, Athanasius said he held one arm out to the Jews, one arm out to the Greeks, bidding all to come. Hmm. It was a call to come home. Wow. That's why Christ came. And he died and rose again, bringing the death of death and showing us that he could be trusted with our lives here and forevermore and that he was exalted into the into the sky on the cross to even redeem the air which was said to be the domain of the devil so in the early church there, there was this wide understanding for the work of christ and none of it centered around our imputing our sin to him and him imputing his righteousness to us he forgives he's just to forgive the repentant Ezekiel 18 says, when a wicked man turns from his wicked ways, actually, I guess that's Isaiah 55, 7, and a righteous, unrighteous man turns from his unrighteous thoughts, and they return, God will freely and abundantly pardon. Ezekiel 18 says, if a wicked man turns from his wickedness and does what is right, he will live. God has always been able to forgive. You don't have God the Father unable to forgive, and Jesus who can, saying, go, your sins are forgiven. Prior to the, prior to the crucifixion, Jesus is forgiving sins. What? How do you do that? Oh, well, they did that in, in, in belief that eventually God was going to pour his wrath out on Jesus. And if, it would be it, it, 
He's looking forward to make it retroactive. It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. But Augustinians are pink elephants and blue aardvarks, and they, they make a mess out of everything. And the early church, the, the East on their incarnation and redemptive work, spot on. I mean, they just, they understand it. You know, talking about uh, how Christ ascended in in the air, right? We see this understanding, and we see this in the Bible, right? Romans, uh, I think it's eight, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, but the whole creation, right? Christ is redeeming and refreshing and renewing the entire creation. This culminates in Revelation with a new heavens and a new earth. And I love, I'm reading Ignatius right now, and I love, I love Ignatius. Um, so I've got an icon of him actually in uh on my icon stand anyway um but he talks about christ purifying the water not only that but whenever christ descended into hades so you see this this i love it because christ is all and in all just like paul says and he's redeeming all in all from the bottom of the depths of hell or hades to the tops of heaven this entire world is being renewed uh, by Christ. And it's just, it, yeah. it blows and, my mind. And it's not, it's not what we were taught as Protestants. Mm. It's not what we were taught as Protestants. The, the early church saw the totality of the life and work of Christ as healing, redeeming, and restoring. And Protestants put the emphasis on the crucifixion. So mm. in, in crass language, one of my, one of my co-hosts on a series that I'm doing right now, you know, he says in, in Protestant view, the incarnation was nothing more than giving God a, a, a bag of blood to throw his wrath at. But in the early church, it was so much more than that. Yeah. And that might be inflammatory speech, but I think it accurately highlights the distinction in, in those views. Yeah, right on. All right. So I want to get to Dan's uh, question. He asks about when we were talking about Hebrews 2. So what does lifelong mean? Hebrews 2.15, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Yeah, some, some translations will render that as futility. Okay. But it's, it's basically the hopelessness that comes from knowing that you're mortal and that the only thing that awaits you is death. And there's no hope beyond that. Hmm. So we're all slaves to this hopelessness. We're slaves of, of um, a life of futility, a life without hope. A, a life of, of being slaves under sin, whether we're sinning or we're just living under the consequences of sin and death with no hope. That's what this is talking about. It's not talking about an inability uh, to recognize that these were people that were, that were depressed because they recognized it and they, they were trusting in the Messiah to come and save them from this. It wasn't, it wasn't an inability. Um, but that's that, I believe that's what it's talking about. The futility that comes with mortality without a resurrection. As, as the apostles said, if Christ is not raised, then we are to be pitied among all men. We're, we're, we're wasting our time. Right on, right on. Um, so a quick question, and then we've got one more after this. Is Tyler Orthodox? Tyler is a catechumen in the Orthodox Church right now. So I am taking this year um, not only to experience, or not, well, let me put it like this. I'm taking this year not only to learn about orthodoxy but to experience it as well and so with that being said uh my me my wife and my little girl uh a couple so it was on thomas sunday um a couple weeks back we were um inducted i guess you could say uh, as catechumens into uh, the orthodox church that's close by in evansville so the same place where 
uh, Braxton and Jonathan are actually went and hung out with them uh, for a little bit, a couple weeks after that. But yes. So to answer your question, GMW, I am a uh, catechumen. Uh, then our last question, it's almost, so it's kind of facetious, right? So Jamie doesn't actually think you're saying this, but I think that you have had this objection. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Jamie, Jamie and I are cool. I'm not okay. I won't take any offense at what he says. Okay. Fair enough. So, well, he throws a little comment at the end of this, but uh, so Jamie asked question, why does Mr. McGrew think he can save himself? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, here's what's funny is I confess that I am a sinner that I'm the idiot that rebelled. I confess that I'm the one who was foolish, stubborn, um, ignorant, um, that my sin is my own. I don't blame anybody else for it. And in some circles, that gets me condemned for going, I, it's my sin. And they go, how dare you? It's Adam's sin. You know, you're going to hell for confessing you're a sinner. That, that's kind of the, the response that I get. And I think that's what he's playing on here. Um, but no, confessing that I'm a sinner, even that, and saying that I have the ability to confess I'm a sinner, does not merit or earn or demand that the Lord save me. He could go, oh, did you just, he could be like the police on some of these YouTube channels. He's like, did you just incriminate yourself? Mm. We're throwing the book at you, you know? And, yeah. We're, we're hauling you off. You, you've just con you've confessed you're a sinner. You know, it, that's not meritorious. If, if that was meritorious, there wouldn't be anybody in jail. Everybody would everybody would confess. We'd you know, it's meritorious. Off. What it merits is jail. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. All but right. God is gracious. And yeah. and I dare say when God forgives, it is just because God's justice is centered first and foremost on redemption, not retribution. Amen. Amen. All right. One last question that just came in from Jamie again. Uh, does everyone need provision from God to do what is pleasing to God? Hmm. Do we need provision from God to do what is pleasing to God? Um, I would say yes. I mean, we need, we need to know what God wants. He needs to reveal that to us. Um, he needs to teach us. Um, it, the Bible says everyone who is taught of the Father will come. I mean, I, that was one of the verses I thought we were going to get to tonight. But um, <laughs> we can always but, do a part two. <laughs> yeah, we, can, we can do a part two. I love visiting with you guys, and this is one of my passion topics. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I think everyone needs provision from God um, to 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 pretty much do anything. The, the mistake a lot of Calvinists, there's a gentleman on YouTube and Twitter called the Consistent Calvinist. I, I mm. shouldn't give him a shout out, but I will. Um, but he thinks that if, if God is sustaining you, then God is uh, causing uh, all things. And that might be a, a, a bit of a misrepresentation uh, of his view, but he's he's strong determinist. Um, but no, for God to provide and sustain for us and care for us, um, is not causal. It's not, it's not, um, theistic determinism. It's not provenient grace. The air that I breathe right now, that's God's provision, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that I'm, the fact that I'm drawing breath one more minute is from God's provision. The fact that I'm able to, uh, visit with, with other brothers in the faith across the internet, the fact that I can go pick up my Bible and read, or that I can pray, or I can have someone in church tell me something, 
and that will spur me on. Um, all of that is, is stuff that we need. Um, one more, I swear this is the last one that just came in, uh, from Doug. Does Warren believe in propitiation? I believe that, uh, that, that would be referring to, uh, what is it? Hilismos, um, Hilosmos. Hilosmos. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that contextually in most passages, that's referring to, uh, mercy, um, more than it is making God propitious. Um, I think that that's demonstrating that God already is propitious. So when you read this, um, to make propitiation um, for the sins of the people, I, I think that's to say that Jesus is showing mercy on people and their sins, that he's interceding for us, not that he's enabling the Father to forgive or that he's making him propitious, but Jesus is acting in that capacity of mercy that he's interceding. And it's not, I don't even see him interceding with the father going, Hey dad, don't, you know, father, don't, don't destroy these people. They're of one mind and one spirit, you know, the Holy spirit, the son, the father, they're of one mind, one will, one purpose. So they're, they're unified. I don't believe in a divided Trinity. So I don't think that Jesus is interceding to the father saying, Hey, don't, don't strike Warren dead because he rejects total depravity. And the father's like, well, I really wanted to, but Jesus, all right, I'll let, I'll, I'll let him have another day. I think really what it is, is Jesus is interceding um, and showing mercy and he is patient and working in the world and sending people out and using means to draw all men to repentance. That I think that's speaking of, of Christ and God actively being merciful um, we could look at specific passages if you want to do like an exegetical view of a particular view, but generally I think that's speaking of the mercy of God because he's already desiring that. Yeah. And to be honest, I think that scholars are honestly taking another look at Hilosmos because of what we understand about the uh, cognate word Hilasterion, right? That means mercy seat, period, in yeah. the subject. Yeah. And because the root, you know, is there, in Hilosmos and both Hilasterion, uh, scholars are now taking a, a second look and seeing how uh, Second Temple uh, Hellenized Jewish um, people would have used that in different contexts. And so I'm interested to see their findings on that. But y'all, this has been awesome. Like, I, I love this discussion, Warren. I've got to have you on more often, and I really want to do a part two, diving into some more key verses with you uh, about this subject and about your view of provisionism. Uh, let's, so let's take the time. Let's do some closing thoughts and then, um, from Josh and Dale, and then I will let you guys run. Uh, but Dale, we'll start with you since we started with Josh last time. What are you convinced? Are you now a provisionist bro and leaving the total depravity aside or what's going on with you? Um, so, so there's definitely some points that Warren made that I, I do still strongly disagree with. Okay. Um, there are other things that I agree with in terms of what he was saying. Um, I think he, okay. So in terms of our, we, I definitely didn't, uh, agree with him that original sin, this notion that we inherit Adam's sin, like through some sort of spiritual genetics or something like that, uh, that's false. Um, so I'm on board with you guys there. Um, I'm not sure about the issue of, are we born unable? And that sort of thing. I'm still, I still have some skepticism about that. I still think that the Holy Spirit is needed to 
to do stuff. But yeah, Warren gave me some some things to think about um, on that front. So I yeah, uh, that's where I am at the moment is uh, leaning towards where where I used to be, but uh, have some things to to look into. Okay, right on, Josh. I am exceptionally pleased right now. Um, I knew you'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, it's it's important to uh, to be pleased when being pleased is ordinate. So I like to be able to say that. Um, I like. I, I don't think people express their 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 happiness enough. Yeah. Um, we we exp we we often express when we're excited about something, um, but I I think that being satiated is a good thing. And I, I feel like this went really well. Um, I, I I spent a lot of time headbanging and nodding over here. That was really fantastic. Uh, and I, I agree. I second the, the the motion here to have Warren back on, at least for a part two, if not for other conversations oh, on yeah. tangential issues. Because oh, anytime, the, anytime, guys. Yeah. Yeah. And and I also I if if I could throw it out there, I'd like to. Uh, to pick your brain future tense about something that I, I, I saw you talking with Ali Bonner about and her book about the, the, the whole controversy with Pelagius and stuff. So um, that also was of interest to me. So future tense, hope to do this again more than once. And I'm so privileged to be here. This is well, thank you for having me. I, I, y'all been great. I appreciate Dale's pushback. I appreciate y'all's uh, questions and allowing me ramble, uh, ramble on and on and, yeah, it, it's been fun. Right on, right on. So Warren, I want to thank you for coming on as well. We're definitely, we, we have to do a part two and I do want to bring you on for other topics. Um, whenever uh, we get a, a chance, I know we're booked for June. Um, I know I'm starting to schedule for July. Uh, so I'll touch base with you off of air about that. Um, also y'all, um, we have got a very interesting show on Friday. So Dale and David are going to, this is their last shot. No, they've got a year to do this, but they are going to convince me of Protestantism. I should not leave. I'm, I've got to come back. Uh, we've got a panel discussion. I know they've got some interesting cats on there that's going to uh, join us for that discussion, uh, including the black doctor, Jeremiah Short. I know um, David is trying to get uh, well, former uh, father uh, Joshua Shooping on that discussion. He's also trying to get Jeremiah Nortier, the apologetic dog, uh, and then a few other uh, people and some TikTokers. So Priscilla Destiny Vargas is joining us along with a couple others. Um, so they're going to try again to convince me not to leave uh, Protestantism and to ditch orthodoxy. Uh, so that's going to be fun. Then on the 26th, so that's uh, this Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern time. On the 26th, I met a uh, lady on TikTok who has a similar testimony to mine. Uh, she came from a background of drug addiction. And so we're going to talk about her testimony and her experience with drugs and how God saved her uh, from that. I'm working on putting a show together about the Trinity. So Dale had emailed me. A while, well, this wasn't a while. It was uh, so Jamie, uh, one of our listeners, had emailed me a question about uh, the Trinity. You know, it, if Jesus died and God cannot die, can Jesus be God? This, that, and the other. And so I emailed that's more, it still. That's more the incarnation, I think, right? Then, or yeah, it's all related. But. Yeah, yeah, in a sense, uh, with the incarnation. But what I'm doing is I'm putting together a 
Um, so I'm, I want to bring on a gentleman from Sweden. He hosts the show uh, about John. He's had Father um, Andrew Damick on. He's had uh, Father Stephen DeYoung on. Uh, and so he's Orthodox. And so I want to I want to get an understanding of orthodoxy and their view of the trinity i forget so are you are you talking are you talking monarchy of the father nicene yes. trinitarianism yes exactly. yeah that's where it's at that's where the, that's the action that's 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 trinitarianism would you be interested in coming on for that one sure i might learn a few things but yeah i'm monarchy all the way all right so i don't understand it and and that's what i and that's what i want to uh mm-hmm to kind of bring it out and so okay so great so i'll touch base with you about that uh when we're going to do that i think that sounds like a good one i think june the third if i'm not mistaken um but but i'll, I'll confirm that and and oh. uh, get back with you guys okay. um also like i said we've got june uh booked every friday uh, of june and that's about it for me y'all uh I, i've learned a lot this episode i want to go back because i love how warren and i have the same view of anthropology and so i think you brought a lot to the table in discussing that topic tonight and i want to go back and really learn from you about that so thank you so much warren i really appreciate it dale uh, i have a real seekers announcement uh just because before the ahead, show on friday yeah. tomorrow at 11 a.m i have another shroud wars episode with uh mark and uh, sorry um bob rucker joe marino Hugh Ferry and uh, Justin Robinson, who's a coin expert. Uh, so we're going to be uh, doing another Shroud Wars panel review uh, tomorrow at 11 a.m. So, yep, that's my only announcement. So look forward to that if you're into the Shroud. Uh, not sure, Warren, are, what's your take on the Shroud of Trend? Do you are you pro Shroud or no idea? You know, I'm kind of I'm kind of neutral. I'm uh, I don't I don't I'm not a um, I'm not as skeptical as I once was. Um, but I'm I'm on the fence. Like before, I was like, whatever, no. And now I'm like, I don't know, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. So um, I'm I'm kind of right on that line. Same, Dell, Dell, and Teddy, uh, Papas, Papas, yeah, Papas, Papas. Uh, they convinced me. So Dell's got a series dedicated to the Shroud right now, and they actually convinced me that it's not a medieval forgery uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So I mean, I there's a lot that. of scientific evidence that goes behind it. Yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of historical argumentation. That's mm-hmm. what I said. I used to be over here, and now I'm like right here. I don't know. You're on you the know, way. Yes, you pushed. Yeah. Over. I mean, it, if if it if it is historically accurate, it goes even further to validate uh, or validate the, you know, the historicity of the resurrection. So exactly. um, I don't want to, I think part of the reason I'm restraining is because I don't want to just latch onto it because it's utility. You know, I want to make sure that I really truly believe it. Right. Right on. All right, y'all. Um, if that does it, then we will see y'all next time. Again, if you would like to support uh, faith unaltered, or real seekers you can always leave us a super chat or super sticker if you would like to donate to the ministry email me faithunaltered at gmail.com if you cannot financially support us but still want to support us always like our content share it with your friends and family and please subscribe to our channel that goes for idol killer as well that goes for real seekers and that goes for the complete sinner's guide the josh host as well so again thank you all have a wonderful wonderful night. God bless and stay like Christ.